Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's The Wonky Show. We talk finance and forecasts from the OFS. We have earnings from different learnings. We talk about the EdTech strategy and some appy app winners. It's all coming up. You know, what it didn't do is sort of say, you, you know, you, ha- you have a, a, range, a range of career opportunities open to you. It just sort of said, oh, well, you should be this then. And, 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 and obviously, kind of, that's not the path that my career has taken. So, uh, you know, I, 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 do, I do sort of worry about, about what it tells people about what's possible because actually, and it would not be sensible. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm Rachel Firth and here to scramble across the scree of higher education policy. As usual, we have three excellent guests. In Manchester this week, we have Julia Clark, Pro Vice-Chancellor for the Faculty of Business and Law at Manchester Metropolitan University and also the Chair of Chartered Association of Business Schools. Julia, give us your highlight of the week, please. Uh, well, I think my highlight of the week was actually yesterday evening. We had the launch of our marketing apprenticeships um, student program, uh, but also I managed to get myself locked in the building afterwards. <laughs> had to call security. So. And in London this week, we have Johnny Rich, Chief Executive of Push and the Engineering Professors Council. Johnny, what's your highlight of the week, please? Well, I quite enjoyed Wednesday night's Commons votes, but probably my highlight is at the weekend, I walked through some woods in Oxfordshire and it was, it was full of baby deer and oh. I'm possibly, I'm, I'm blooming with the possibilities of summer. It was fantastic. And live from Wonky HQ, we have Wonky's editor, Debbie McVitie. Debbie, what is your highlight of the week, please? Good morning, Rachel. My morning. highlight is yet to come. Uh, because oh. la- later today, I will have the privilege of interviewing uh, Education Minister for Wales, Kirsty Williams, for a special edition of our podcast, which I'm very excited about. Uh, right, let's get going. This week, we start with the Office of Students, or OFS, as you may know them, and their report, Financial Sustainability of Higher Education Providers in England. So, Debbie, what were the highlights or the points of interest in this report for you? Well, it's really what, it's what the press has been reporting this morning, um, is that the Office for Students has identified that universities have collectively been quite optimistic in their uh, predicted student number growth over the next five years. So two-thirds are expecting growth of more than 5%, which would create an aggregate projected growth of more than 10% over the next four or five years. Uh, and the point OFS is making um, in their assessment is, is that this is probably quite unrealistic um, when the 18-year-old population is still in decline for at least the next couple of years. Um, it's notable that predicted growth is highest in the institutions with the lowest tariffs, which makes sense if you consider that those are the institutions that are most likely being hit by uh, the removal of student number controls and who may have lost some of their students to, uh, to market competition. Um, there's also I mean, some other little nuggets in there as well. So uh, there's, there's a widespread expectation that international student income will increase. So that may partly because uh, we're, they're 
institutions are predicting that they'll recruit more students, but also that there will be an increase in fees potentially. Um, growth in borrowing is expected uh, over the next five years, so from 9.9 billion to 13.3 billion. So people who like to say that there's too much borrowing going on in the sector will probably quite enjoy that. Um, and I think there's a there's a wider issue here. I think institutions are being expected to predict their income over the next five years in a climate of unprecedented uncertainty. So with Brexit coming around the corner, we don't know what the impact is going to be on the economy. We've got the Augur review in England, which could have an impact on institutional income. Um, and of course, there's still quite a lot of issues unresolved around all of the major pensions uh, systems in, in, the, in the sector. And it's not clear how much uh, institutions are going to have to be paying into those pensions. So in, some, in one sense, you know, it, you can caveat this and say, well, these forecasts are, are just sort of doing, doing you know, institutions are doing what they can in a, a time of, of, of extreme uncertainty, and these are only forecasts. But I also wonder whether we should question whether institutions are maybe not making sufficient distinction between their being their ambitions and the targets that they're setting themselves uh, to for kind of for, for growth and, and increasing access um, and the actual realities of their financial forecasting. And that, I think, speaks to the challenge of, of doing your accounting in public. Julie, what did you make of this? Well, I should probably confess here, I am actually an accountant. So oh, I God. find this very <laughs> interesting. I would love to hear your views. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think, I think that, that point that you make um, about uh, doing our accounting in public is a very interesting one. Um, and the fact that then that probably pushes us into being more optimistic than we might be if we were making these predictions in private. I mean, I have to say, a 20.7% increase in international income. Um, I, I just, where we are at present as a country, I can't see that happening. So that, you know, that, that seems incredibly, incredibly optimistic if we think about the context of international education and how, for example, countries like, um, China in particular are no longer just exporters of students, they're also importers. So that, that looks a very, very optimistic figure to me. Well, Julia's point goes to the international strategy that was published the other week. And that's a bizarre document if ever I saw one. I mean, it, 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 the ambitions aren't wrong, but they're unambitious. Um, that, you know, they set 660,000 international students as the target. Uh, that's in a population of 60 million versus Australia that's aim, aiming for, I think it's 720 in a population of 20 million and 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 the UK is hoping to achieve this though without actually doing anything you know the the six months post-graduation visa versus Australia's two to four months you know we're not sorry two to four years we're we're not doing anything to actually make this country more attractive in fact we're doing everything we can to make it less attractive you know we're running into the brick wall that is Brexit at full tilt um, and covering our ears and, uh, and, and shouting it's all okay la 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 not listening you know <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite ridiculous to hope that we will achieve these um, these international goals unless things radically change and the, the sums just don't add up you can't have um, everybody thinking they're going to do better than average half have to be wrong and if you, it, it goes back to an issue that's been discussed on the Wonky podcast time and again about what happens if institutions go bust. And the government has got to work out a solution to that because this isn't just students it would damage. It's not just academics it would damage. It's whole communities. It, you know, it's like the mother of all Nissan plants going bust, a big university in a, in a, 
in a town going going bust would have huge impact on the regional and national economy. I was just going to say, I think that is a really, really interesting point because, um, you know, we know there are certain cold spots in terms of higher education. So this, this idea that um, it's the office for students who are identifying those potentially risking, risky providers that are in risk of not being viable or sustainable and that they will intervene. It does raise an issue, a question in terms of the whole kind of policy regulation around higher education now that it's OFS who are, are putting out this report because universities are about students, are about income from students, but they are about a lot more, as you say, and that contribution to um, the regional economies that universities bring is really, really critical. So I feel, I do worry here that we're just seeing things through one lens. I think we also don't really, we don't necessarily know where these new students are expected to come from. I mean, it would be quite interesting if, for example, lots of universities were thinking about developing their franchise partnerships for level four and five, or they were thinking we're going to radically expand degree apprenticeships, or we are going to tap into the mature market by delivering new online provision to target cold spots. You know, it, it's, it's not impossible that that's what's going on. I, I suspect that that would be, all of that would be quite radical at a time when it's difficult to know what the world's going to look like. And I suspect it's probably not. But, you know, we, I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't assume that every single university is going to be targeting a declining 18 year old population. I mean, there must be other, other, other conversations going on about the, about the wider diversity, diversity of, uh, absolutely. Provision. But, but if you want, things to be different if you want to draw from a different part of society or from a from a new market for want of a better word you've got to market to that market you've got to work out what your strategy is to get them to do something that they haven't been doing previously which is to to buy into your service you know i'm using the language of uh, of commercialization here um, which isn't very comfortable but that's what we're talking about on that subject on the bankruptcy one suggestion um, that i heard that i think was the uk that came up with it which is really a good idea is that the government needs to work out um uh, what happens when public interest organizations go bust and so we need a public interest receiver um and i really like that idea okay dokey let's see who's been blogging for us this week Hi, my name's Adam Tweed. I'm the Service Development Manager at AbilityNet and part of the team behind My Study My Way, the student-enabling platform. The piece I've written about is based on the trolley or tram problem. Essentially, it's about the moral choice, about the cost of intervention, whether or not you could make the conscious choice to harm an individual in the knowledge that doing so would save a group. Big data, analytics, AI present us with new ethical dilemmas. If the systems we use in our institutions are able to predict with increasing certainty whether or not the human interventions we make are going to have an impact on individual student retention, should we choose to trust this data, even if it's telling us things we may not want to hear? Or do we ignore it because morally we're obligated to help every individual, even if we risk impacting others? I don't suggest an answer, but I think it's a discussion we should be having. Hello, my name is Jimmy Crockford and I work in the Winding Participation Research and Evaluation Unit at the University of uh, Sheffield. Um, this week I wrote a short blog article reflecting on the publication of the Office for Students Standards of Evidence documentation which uh, is designed to guide HE providers in how to evaluate their, their winding participation activities. Um, the piece I wrote was uh, very appreciative of 
the guidance. I think it's really challenging and, and quite radical and it asks uh, institutions to take a really searching, questioning approach to their widening participation activities. Um, so I was, I was reflecting on the kind of the potentially radical impact that could have in pushing the sector to make more progress to meet the Office of Student Targets. Next up, a report has been published from the National Institute of Economic and Social Research and the Centre for Vocational Education Research. The report focused on earning outcomes of young people pursuing higher vocational qualifications with those of degree holders. So, Johnny, what did you make of this report? It's a really interesting report. It's got um, a number of findings that aren't surprising. You know, it won't surprise you to learn that graduates, by the time they're earning, they're 30, are earning considerably more than non-graduates. Um, it also won't surprise you to hear that um, people who've done the level four and five qualifications are um, earning more at first, in the first few years. And that's because, of course, the graduates are still studying and taking time to move in. But there's this sort of convergence and swap over around about the mid-20s. Um, but there is one, one finding in there that is quite surprising, and that is that people who've done um, level four or five STEM subjects, so um, STEM, science, technology, engineering, and maths, and level four or five, just for those who aren't entirely aware of what what the levels are level four is for want of a better explanation broadly equivalent to first year of university so qualifications that you get there and or that are equivalent to that and then level five broadly equivalent second year and so those who are leaving education with qualifications at that level in stem by age 30 are earning more than those from non-russell group universities with stem degrees now that is really surprising um and it you know you have to start thinking why is this you can attack the data this is leo data you can say it's really old it's historical it's from the 2003 cohort it's england only you know you can pick holes like that um and also the number of people doing level four and five um, qualifications is quite small compared to the number doing degrees that can cause statistical blips and so on but let's take it at face value. If we do that, the thing I take from it is that there are two ways to earn more. One is to go to a, get great grades in the first place, go to a highly selective university, um, get a good degree, and acquire a lot of social capital. And social capital, I think, is really important in, in this. Possibly have the social capital in the first place to get into those universities. And if you had social capital all along, you earn more um, later and your education has perhaps been as well as an exercise in developing you as a person it also has rubber stamped your social capital the second way of earning more is to really know what you want and go for it <laughs> um, the report identifies that some of these people doing level four and five they're doing them a little bit later in life they're not necessarily coming straight out of school and going into them so they're doing them from the workplace already they're doing them perhaps in order to give their careers that boost they know exactly that that's the qualification they need to take the leap and so this might not be a scalable difference and um, it might be that if if you did try and say, right, let's have lots more f level four and five instead of people going to university uh, for a full degree, you might find that actually the difference disappears. It, but one thing we must take away from this is that we need more work-related learning in university education. We need people to come out 
having done placements. We need them to have learnt in an applied way whatever it is they're studying. And they need to have accrued employability, transferable skills and the attributes that make somebody employable. Uh, well, I, I was very interested in the way that obviously this is kind of setting up and reinforcing this binary between vocational education and academic education. And, uh, you know, if we, if we do this survey perhaps in 10 years time, it'd be really interesting to see what's been the impact of degree apprenticeships in this area, because actually those, uh, you know, are really kind of pulling together that professional education, that academic education. Um, and when I look at our students who are doing uh, degree apprenticeships in STEM subjects, such as the uh, the digital, um, the salary progression for those people is absolutely staggering through the time that they're doing their apprenticeship, through the time that they're studying at university. So I would be really interested to see this survey replicated in a few years time, because I think it might help us to, you know, in stopping us thinking always about putting vocational education and pitching it against academic education, which is really, really not what employers want at all. The thing that strikes me is, of course, is that the category of STEM is very, very broad. It would make sense to me that there was level four and five offerings in places in the country and in industries where there is a well-defined skills need, because that's how those things often tend to work, which would then make sense that those people would be employed and would be in high demand. Um, but if you're, you know, but if you're talking about, you know, STEM provision across the piece, you're going kind of all the way sort of engineering through pharmacy to bits of agriculture, you know, so you've, you've got lots of sort of, di you know, diversity in that. Um, and I think it speaks to the challenge of saying, saying, if we just put this information in front of students, it will help them make choices. Because the, the degree, the, the, the kind of the, the precision of the level of information you would need about subject choice and part of the country and labour market and the labour force would be so, you know, granular that, that it would probably become meaningless unless you were, unless you were actually, you know, as you say, Johnny, already in work thinking, right, this is, this is the career trajectory I want to go for, right? And I know that there's opportunities and I'm going to do this course, which is going to help me develop in that regard. But for an 18 year old saying, you know, well, will I be a pharmacist, you know? Um, and of course, and of course, you know, uh, being a, being a pharmacist in a community that is not well, you know, that is not well served by, by pharmacists is, you know, is, is, is a great career choice, but it's probably not going to make you a million pounds. Uh, now, every week this season on the podcast, we are delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academics registrar, Mike Radcliffe, here is the hidden history of HE. One of the things I think makes history of higher education interesting is the, the amount of continuity and the amount of change that we see. So one of the things I really enjoy is looking at old regulations of how we looked after students. Um, sometimes that's quite useful because you get really good ideas of how you can regulate students now in the, in the present. But I think sometimes it just shows us that we're still dealing with some of the same challenges. So my favourite set of these regulations is the statutes of the Collegium Sapienti at Freiburg University, which were written in 1497. And they are beautiful. They are illustrated, which I think is a great idea. Well, you know, we should run that out across um, universities anyway. But they cover the whole of student life. They were written by a bishop who'd been working with the university for a long time. He understood what students got up to. Uh, and he set out a complete set of rules. So it has everything you could 
possibly want to run a proper university. So it's got rules about how you uh, welcome a student to the university, how you make a list of the furnishings in their room, so it gets an inventory, and so that it's clear that they've got to account for everything that's in the rooms. Um, there's a system for allocating the rooms. It's done by lottery, so no one can have the good rooms um, on favouritism. Uh, and there are quite clear rules about what time you have to go to bed, and that there's study time, everyone should be quiet. Uh, you have to clean your room once a week. There's a great set of rules for how you have to make your bed immediately after you've risen in the morning. Uh, and then you get into the excitement, which is the penalty system. So the regulation says failure to comply as a result of laziness when noticed during the weekly inspection and reported to the president shall be punished by the removal of wine. If this should happen frequently, the scholar in question shall be deprived of his bed. Now, the great thing about all of these regulations is basically the tariff system is how much wine you have removed for the different infringements you go through. Now, we have to remember that obviously um, wine was a different kind of commodity. It was you know, a drinkable uh, uh, drink. It wasn't quite the same as uh, you know, having a, you know, uh, your vodka-based um, uh, confection taken away from you by the university. But that's how it works. You go through uh, and you, you get all these punishments. So there's a whole bunch of things that these people are, are, are not allowed to do. They're, they're kind of clerks in lay orders, there, so they're kind of semi-religious, but it's very clear there's lots of things they shouldn't be getting on to. So uh, there's to be no loose frivolous, frivolous uh, or obscene song, no blasphemy and no kinds of boasting. Um, dice, cards and sticks for casting locks on all games of chance are forbidden. Disregard of this rule should be punished with the loss of wine for a week. Chess, however, is allowed. And it goes on. So there are these lovely things. So, uh, again, one of the things we do is we, we often contrast ourselves with uh, people in the US. So there's a lot of very clear rules about no arms allowed. So you have to hand your sword into the president when you arrive at the college. Uh, if you need it back, you can go and get it when you, you, you know, if you're going outside town, uh, but you're not allowed to keep it in, in the hall. And there are very clear rules about no fighting in the, in the college and, and what you do with it. And as you go through the sets of regulations, each has this wonderful little illustration showing you exactly what's going on. So there's every everything is, is beautifully set out and laid down. But it's a pocket set of rules, and most of it, uh, probably apart from the swords, is entirely applicable to the modern university. Next up, the Education Minister, Damien Hines, has announced the Department for Education now has an EdTech strategy, which covers schools, colleges, universities, and other providers of education. So Debbie, what does this strategy mean for universities? Uh, well, I will I'll begin by saying what's in it because you know yes. I appreciate that not not all of our listeners will have will have come through it with a degree of detail. That's uh, I oh I don't know I don't uh, know they've been I, up all you know, night. I ju I'm just hypothesising. Um, <laughs> I mean, basically, what this is the uh, it's the Department for Education um, bringing together a number of recommendations in areas like improving tech infrastructure. This is for sort of schools, colleges, universities, so the whole education sector. Um, developing capability in education providers to kind of know what sort of tech they need and use it. Um, it, it refining kind of procurement processes so that, you know, providers can get the best deal and, and, and you know, the right sort of tech. Uh, developing better kind of protocols around cybersecurity and um, the protection of data. Um, and there's also the launching a number of big challenges to the sector to address problems such as, you know, cutting time for teachers, uh, uh, marking and um, improving communication with, with parents and that sort of thing. Um, and of course, JISC has a huge role to play in delivering on these issues for the higher education sector. And, you know, I think, well, there's some debate on the site today uh, for regular wonky readers about, you know, whether this is a good strategy or, or you know, whether it, whether it's kind of basically rehearsing some old uh, stuff. But for me, I think it's a fascinating case study in what the role of government should be. 
because you've got lots of different things going on. So one thing that the strategy is trying to do, it's trying to define the desired outcomes. Um, so it's saying, well, we're not going to let the market decide what, what, it, what is desirable to happen in edtech. We want to do that as a sort of, we want to convene a conversation about that and, and, and actually set it out and set out a vision. Um, it's trying to address market failure because I think there's something about the way that uh, technology happens with uh, public sector providers uh, and public interest providers in which there's quite a lot of inequity in the information held by providers of tech and, and procurers of tech and, and that can kind of create sort of silly, silly outcomes. Um, there's a sort of implication that it's probably quite important to protect the public sector from being taken advantage of by unscrupulous tech providers who are kind of selling the latest snake oil as, you know, this will transform your student experience. Um, but there's also... Uh, endeavour to support the UK edtech industry, recognising you know there's quite a lot of innovation um, and, po and positive things going on and, and lots of SMEs quite active in this area. And it's really important that they be given access to the people, to the buyers who they, whose, you know, whose products they were designed for. Um, and then there's, actually, there's also a little bit in there that says, well, actually, as DfE, we're an important provider of digital services and we probably could do that better. And actually, that's where I think they could probably have gone into a bit more detail about exactly how they're going to, as a government, um, you know, sort of set a standard there. Um, uh, the strategy is not very strategic. These sorts of things often aren't. Uh, Michael Barber would certainly frown at the absence of, of uh, defined deliverables uh, uh, checked in on a weekly basis. Um, uh, and I think there's and I think there's a question about uh, you know clearly clearly technology and education are challenging. There's you know there's a lot of cost attached to staying up to date. Um, you do have to adapt teaching. You can't just use it as a bolt on. You have to you have to pick the right technologies. Um, of course the elephant in the room is always how do we pay for this? This is expensive to to get right. Um, and there's quite a lot of evidence um, on the site this week. Uh, our associate editor Minto Felix wrote a blog about about when you know when tech can go wrong. Universities can end up spending an awful lot of money on systems that don't talk to other systems or that end up you know not not delivering what, what was promised. So there's um you know, it's sort of it's sort of fine, but it's not clear to me. That, you know, it doesn't really have a, a theory of change. It doesn't really have intended outcomes. You know, it seems like DFE is going to do a lot of nice stuff, and it's not clear whether it's actually going to move things forward or even really what the direction of travel ought to be. Now, Johnny, have you read this cover to cover? I'm sure you have. I'm sure you've digested every single word. What what did you make of it? <laughs> Many of the things that Debbie says seem right on the money. I mean the. My biggest problem is that uh, people tend to imagine that tech can solve lots of problems, um, you know, Irish borders, for example, and 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 yet then they haven't seen they haven't seen the tech that does it yet, and then when they do see it, they go, oh, that didn't quite live up to the fantasy, and so tech is amazing. Tech can do incredible things, but we mustn't overestimate that, and we mustn't we must recognise what it is good at and what it isn't good at, and what it, it isn't good at is the human side of things. So. EdTech does not replace teachers. It does not replace careers advisors. Um, it does not re replace students doing their own learning. So all of these things need need to be blended with the tech. You need, for example, um, well-qualified careers practitioners delivering careers advice and don't expect that um, EdTech is going to be able to um, do that for you. Now it's time for yes but does it correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan. Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate? Looking critically at numbers like the government chief whip on the day of the meaningful vote. Today I'd like to try to discredit an old chestnut, the idea that providers that recruit proportionally more full-time first-degree students over the age of 21 are more likely to see these same students achieve a good degree. I plotted the percentage of student intake over the age of 21 for one year against the proportion of students over 21 that attained a first class or 2-1 degree. 
The idea is that providers that are set up mainly to deal with mature students are going to be better at supporting their attainment, a suggestion I've heard in various places over the years. The data comes from the recent OFS Access and Participation data release, so refers only to providers of HE in England. Yes? But does it correlate? My um, coin has come down as head, so I'm going to say no. Um, I think there's too much noise in this. I think that there are too many other factors determining higher degrees, and I think there are too many um, factors pulling in the other direction as well. So um, with a confidence interval the size of an ocean of doubt, I'm going to say no. So I, I guess my um, yes comes from me being um, an optimist and hoping um, that there is a correlation in the sense that exactly as was said before, that if the organisations are looking to, to support particular groups of students, that they, that they do that, they do that well. If they have, you know, that stu- the institutions know their students and therefore those students do do well in those institutions. Well, it's only a very weak correlation, R squared is 0.3. But what is fascinating is the direction of the slope. Mature students are, on balance, less likely to get what ministers like to call a good degree from an institution that recruits more mature students. You'll see from the plot on the site that million plus FECs and alternative providers tend to recruit more mature students, so there may be confounding variables relating to social background or prior attainment. Some institutions did not have figures for the most recent year of data, so, as always, where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, you may remember an app competition that Sam Jima launched during his stint as Universities and Science Minister. Well, this week, we are so happy to say we have the first two winners. Yay! The Department of Education has launched two apps to help prospective students make decisions about higher education providers and courses. So, Julia, what do you make of this? Well, I've had to look at them. Well, I've had to look at one of them. Think uh, way up and uh, think uni. I failed the first test in that I couldn't actually access it. Um, but I think it's important to say these are at, at beta stage at the moment. Um, so I had a look at uh, way way up, and it talks you through um, different options in terms of different careers. And I've decided that when I grow up, I want to be a barrister because I can earn up to a million pounds. So, um, but I recognise, you know, I'm not the the demographic that this is aimed at. This is more kind of uh, for Generation Insta. So I did run a little test on the school bus this morning, and I have the results in, um, texted in from my son, um, and the views from uh, the bus to. Um, Skipton Grammar School this morning are that the app is just a bit fiddly, like quite hard to use and quite long winded. Uh, and I went off it and then refreshed and I had to start, which is a bit stupid. So, yeah, that, that if um, I think there might be some work to do going from the beta to uh, the alpha version. That is superb consumer testing. Thank you all who were on the school bus uh, to, to skip to uh, school this morning. Um, as, as, as any, uh, Debbie, uh, Johnny, have you had a go on these apps? What do you make of them? I have had a go on these apps. and I'm, I'm sorry to say I'm not impressed by either of them. Um, I think that the one from the profs, the way up, is, is a bit better, but it fails the patronometer test. Um, I run an organisation called Push, and we do a lot of outreach with this target market. And I always talk to our team about the patronometer because teenagers really have um, this built-in device uh, that um, is very sensitive to being patronised. And if they, if that if the needle goes into the red zone, then all systems shut down. And I'm afraid that the way up, I think, is failing that at the moment. The Think Uni one, 
I'm I'm really sorry to say uh-uh, it's not good. It it um it it fails the test of behavioral science and how people make choices. People don't weigh up data in a rational and objective way. They don't have binary choices or they they don't like to be confronted with binary choices um because they'll usually go yeah but neither. Um you know, maybe we should have had that with Brexit. But um they they come to things not in a rational way, but with preconceptions, feelings, and they need information um, that challenges those beliefs rather than reinforces those beliefs, because they tend to seek out the information through a confirmation bias that that backs up what they already thought. Instead, we need to disrupt their decision-making process, and these apps don't don't do that. They could. We could have had good apps. Um, but these ones feel a bit gimmicky. They're trying to gamify. And when it comes to gamifying, if you look at um, these apps versus, for example, Grand Theft Auto or Fortnite, um, you know, they're, <laughs> they're just not going to cut it. Sorry. <laughs> it's going well. It's kind of like an online version of the game of life where, you know, you have to kind of spin the spin the spinometer and then you get to kind of move forward. And sometimes you go to college and sometimes you don't. You go straight into the workplace. And the idea is mm. to end up in the millionaire's mansion at the end. They also don't solve one of the biggest problems of um, getting information out there, and that's discoverability, finding the apps in the first place. You're only going to find the app if you already were hunting for information or hunting for, you know, wanting to make uh, an informed choice, in which case you probably didn't need the app in the first place. There are probably better ways of doing it, such as talking to a real-life person who has access to data that they can then contextualise for you. Such a novel idea, a real-life person. Also a novel idea, Fortnite for university um, kind of selection process, possibly. I don't know. There's something in that. Uh, d- do, do you want a bit of gossip about one of these apps? Please, yeah. Um, one of the directors of The Profs, which came up with The Way Up, is a guy called Rory Kernock Cook who is the son of our very own Mary Kernock Cook, ah. um, the grand dam of higher education. Um, and But, you know, he is a very impressive individual by all accounts in his own right. So I don't want to suggest that um, uh, Mary's influence is anything other than um, providing good genes and good upbringing. Excellent. Thank you for that inside knowledge. Um, Debbie, have you had a look at these or generally what do you think of these uh, apps? Well, and I is mean, this the kind of way to go? I think... I think I mean, I think there's all kinds of issues that have been kind of well, well uh, outlined by my colleagues. The, you know, they are in beta, and, and I imagine that extensive user testing and development is is going to be the sorts of things that these uh, app developers are going to spend their their watch of cash from the Department for Education, or I certainly hope it is. Um, I mean, I'm very skeptical, as Johnny is, about about whether an app based you know, whether you can just provide information via an app, you know, whether an app is going to solve our problems. It does, and, and I also, I don't think there's anything really very new here. The, it reminds me of, I think when I was about sort of 13 or 14, and I had to answer a series of questions on a, in the, you know, my school's computer suite about my interests. And, you know, I said, oh, I like writing and I'm quite organized. And, you know, I love to read and um, think about the world. And it came out and said, well, you should be a secretary. <laughs> That's brilliant. And I thought, you know, <laughs> There's obviously nothing wrong with being a secretary, <laughs> and you know, sorry, I, not at all. I love but, that. Sorry, but it, but but you know, it sort of, it, you know, what it didn't do is sort of say, you, you know, you have you have a, a range a range of career opportunities open to you. It just sort of said, oh well, you should be this then, and 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 and, and obviously, kind of, that's not the path that my career has taken. So, uh, you know, I, I I do I do sort of worry about about what it tells people about what's possible because actually, and not to be sentimental, but you know, you 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 could you you know you, you can always 
you should you should focus on what, what you want to do and who you want to be not what an app is telling you you can be and I think I think that's really important because it is we know from all our work around sort of aspiration raising etc that it is about people understanding what is possible and what is possible for them so you know being a barrister earning a million pounds which is what I would want to be um, is not possible for me at this point in in, in my life I would say um, but I, I, it worries me that you know we, I think there is going to have to be some auditing of that information that is p- being put out there um, because uh, the, the, the difference between an app and having um, a conversation with the person is um, the person can kind of um, do a bit of sense checking with you. Whereas I don't know that the app, certainly as they're designed at the moment, can do that sense check. So that is about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we will be in touch. So thanks to Julia and to Johnny and to Debbie and to everyone at Team Wonky for making this happen. And until next week, stay happy. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.